following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. Thank you for joining us this morning. Today is a day where we're trying some new things, so if it seems like we are uncertain of ourselves, well, we kind of are. So there's several new things that are actually happening, some you won't know unless you actually are really slowing down and paying attention. Uh, when we have the uh, chili cook-off, it'll be that way. The kids will, um, I assume, will bring them in this way. Normally, we do them in the, in the gym where the kids go. Uh, but we're going to have our chili cook-off out there. Well, uh, after meal's done, or about the time we figure it's a good, good time, we're going to go play some football up on the hill. And if you brought cornhole or anything, I think we'd set that up in the oval in the parking lot back there, or wherever you want to. But that was a humble suggestion. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, join me, if you would, in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you do not have a Bible, don't worry. The verses will be up on the screen behind me. Thank you for joining us this week at Calvary. If this is your first time with us or the first time in a long time, we are uh, grateful to have you with us and take a little time out of your life's journey to, to kind of be with us. One of the things that I, I sort of come to know is that we've, in our culture, we talk about life as a journey. A journey. So uh, even when you grow up and live in the same place your entire life, you're really never stationary. You're always in a, a state of transition from one life, one way of being into another. We're always growing, always changing. And, and so journey is a really good word for it. And the truth is, in, in my line of work, I've heard lots of preachers uh, say, describing the Christian life as a journey. And I think that's, that's good, especially because when you look in the Bible, what you see is that uh, the Bible says that we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, we walk with God through, through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's kind of the description of what the Christian life is, is, is like. And I don't know what your journey is like with God. Maybe you're like not really sure if I'm really following him, not sure if I know him, or maybe you're following him closely, or maybe you kind of slowed down and you're not sure where the journey is going to go and if you're going to rejoin Whatever the case is, life kind of really is a journey. When I think of that, I, I remember two events that took place in my younger years that sort of characterize what life is sometimes like when we think about our journey with, with God. When I was about 12 years old, my parents took me from Cleveland to Cincinnati, and we went to Kings Island Amusement Park. And, and um, I was there, my parents were there, my sister, and she brought uh, her best friend. And Somewhere during the day, I don't know when it was, I, I got separated from, from my parents. And so they, my mom and dad went in different directions, and then Jen and, and Kim went looking for me as well. And mom is frantic, as you can imagine. We are hundreds of miles away from home in a city where we don't know anybody, and there's lots of people. So they're frantic, they're scared, and they send out the search parties. For my part, I'm having the time of my life. I'm riding the beast, the king cobra, the vortex, which I'm told might be being taken down. And I'm having the time of my life. There's things to look at. They got this sort of miniature Eiffel Tower, and I'm, ha I'm having fun. So what, what's the concern, Mom? Why are you freaking out over this? And so finally they find me, and I knew that I was, you know, shouldn't have been lost in the amusement park. But I was having too much fun to even think about the fact that I might actually be in danger. 
Now with four kids of my own, we had one kid get lost at a, like a harvest party a few years ago. We were terrified. So I know exactly what mom and dad were feeling when our kids got separated, from, when, when I got separated from mom and dad. And they, they eventually found us, and she, she was angry, but she was so happy to see me. She hugged me, and, and uh, that's kind of how it was. And a lot of times in life, we're kind of like, like I was. I was lost in an amusement park, not realizing that I was actually in danger. And it is into a world like this where Jesus Christ came to seek people who don't actually realize that they're not always that safe. They're, in fact, far from their heavenly Father. And then I remember about the same time, I was about 10 years old, growing up in Ohio, my good friends were Joey and Danny DeSalvo. They were an awesome family, Lucia and Ignazio. They moved to the United States from Italy in their young adult years, and they met each other and fell in love and got married and had a family. So... Joey and Danny, uh, they, they were bilingual, the first people I ever knew that spoke two languages fluently. And um, Luigi and Ignazio also did, and, and their Thanksgiving was a little better. They had, like, pizza and, like, all these amazing pasta dishes. I also learned that even if your mom is an Italian-trained cook, kids still complain about what their parents are cooking. But one year, Grandpa DeSalvo was brought over to live in the United States because he was getting older. He was 90-ish years old, and... He still got around really well. He was really sharp, and he didn't know a word of English that I know, except for I think he called me estupido, because he was right, because I was doing something dumb, and at 90, you don't really filter. So he was right, by the way. But he was very healthy. He got around, and he would go for walks around the neighborhood, but he couldn't really communicate with anybody, which is fine. But one day, he actually, we don't know how, I, don't, I still to this day, I don't know how he got lost, but he decided to take a right turn or a left turn when he was supposed to go a certain way, and he, he got lost for a long time. And so Mr. and Mrs. DeSavio, they get in the cars, they go looking for him. Joey and Danny are riding on their bikes around the neighborhood, and Anthony and, uh, and, and Tony and, and, and Angelo are driving their cars around looking for him frantically. Finally, they found him. I don't know all the whys and the wherefores, but he got lost. And he didn't know how to communicate to anybody to get directions or even tell anybody that he was lost, but the search party was sent out. Why, why do I share his story? Sometimes when we're kind of on our journey through life, we, we don't realize we actually trust our mental faculties, which in his, in his defense, it served him well for 90 years in Italy, but it wasn't working out as well in North Olmsted. And see, sometimes we rely on our intelligence, and, and that's a good thing to do. God gave us those things, but sometimes we're actually kind of like lost and our mental faculties are actually, in a way, deceiving us. You see, in this journey through life, God sent Jesus into the world to reach people who were trusting their own intelligence or not even aware that they're having so much fun that they're, in fact, lost and in danger. And so into this world, Jesus comes. And by the time we get to John chapter 6, Jesus has begun to gain some notoriety. He has turned water into wine uh, saving some embarrassment for a family in the Jewish world. He's begun to, to do miracles. He's healed people. And you, you know Jesus, you know he, was, he did miracles. Well, by the time we get to John chapter 6, Jesus is gathering a crowd. Let's take a look, verse 1 through 3. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing the sick. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there 
he sat down with his disciples, which was the position a rabbi would take when they're about to teach. So people are following Jesus everywhere. And the reason is he's healing people, doing miraculous things. He is teaching with great power and authority. And all the intelligent, well-educated religious leaders want to debate him. And they keep losing. And people are like, he's one of us. And he's confounding the experts, and then he heals people. To kind of give you a perspective of how different that was for them than it was for me, this week I went to the dentist for the first time in like 25 years. Yeah, laugh it up, Christians. It was not great, but not as bad as I thought. So I had an hour-ish long visit and another one scheduled, but they'll, they'll get me fixed up pretty well. The doctors are really good, but it wasn't that way in Jesus' world. We're just stuck for the most part. Jesus walks along, finds a guy who's been crippled from birth, and he's like, get up and start walking. This is Jesus. And, and people are not, they're not dumb. They may not have all the scientific knowledge that you and I might have, but they know when someone's crippled. And when someone can now walk who had been crippled their entire life. So Jesus shows up. He's doing miracles, and this gathered a crowd. People are beginning to expect there's something special about him. And he did miracles not just because he loved people. He most certainly did. He healed people. But he did miracles, check this, to prove that he was telling the truth when he claimed to be the Son of God. Ultimately, when you look at Jesus' life, when he's, when he's standing trial, the ultimate thing that gave him the guilty verdict, they had nothing. They kept making up stories about him, kangaroo court stuff. He claimed to be the Son of God, and then they tore their clothes and said, what further proof do we need that he's a crazy heretic? He said he was the Son of God, making himself equal to God. That was a claim to be God. And so that was ultimately why they killed him. Well, by this point, he's gathering a following. Some are excited about who he is and what he's about, what is God doing in this person named Jesus, and some were following to see the show. But people are starting to follow him. And the question is, what would it take to get you to start following Jesus? Or perhaps to resume the journey? Or perhaps you are a faithful Christian but needed a rest. Maybe Jesus is saying, get up and begin the journey once more. Whatever the case is, Jesus has gotten a crowd to follow him. And he does some crazy things. You know, when, when we want to get a crowd together, we'll, we'll be really nice and you know, we'll invite people. And that's a good thing. But then Jesus does stuff. On purpose, they sort of weed out the real followers from the not-so-real followers. And we're not going to look at those passages today, but Jesus, he wasn't always worried about whether you were going to be offended by what he said. He wasn't offensive on purpose. Well, he probably was, but not just for the purpose of offending. He would challenge people. And now he's going to test his disciples, and specifically about whether or not they have faith and understand who he truly is. Take a look at verse 4 through 10. Jesus tests the disciples' faith. And while we're reading, it might be good to say, am I like any of the people in this part of the story? Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said, to test, he said this to test him, for he already knew what he was about to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be long enough for each of them to get a little. 
one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? In other words, he had basically five mini biscuits and two bluegills. That's kind of give you some idea of the scale here. Verse 10, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Thou, now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So here's what's going on. The Passover feast is upon them. That was a little uh, small note that you could have missed, but this is a huge deal. Passover was the meal that inaugurated Israel's journey from slavery in Egypt as they followed God into the wilderness. And so there's, in, wrapped up in this, they're at a fever pitch because there's remembrance of what God has done in their past. They're realizing things are not what they ought to be, and there's hope that God does not promises in the past. And, and so now they're at a fever pitch, and there's, they're all gathered together. The, the feast is upon them, and they're like, hey, uh, Jesus says, hey, we, we, we don't have food for these people. Because you're supposed to provide a meal for all, all, all your guests. And, and, and so, so they're testing, Jesus is testing them. He already knew what he was going to do. When you think about the Exodus, check this out. Jesus uh, is ultimately here to deliver us in a way similar to, that was foreshadowed by the Exodus where the Israelites were led out of Egypt. You know the story, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt and they're crying out to God for deliverance. And so God sends Moses, and he's going to deliver them. And he says, hey, uh, here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna have, you're going to have this meal called the Passover. You're going to eat this meal. And while you're eating this meal, make sure you've got your traveling clothes on because you're going to be leaving soon. And they celebrate. You know how it goes. They, they, they leave. There's this parting of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is destroyed. And God is doing all the fighting for them. It's always interesting when I hear that they find chariot wheels at the bottom of the, uh, of the Red Sea. Nevertheless, we see this event going on, and, and it is a deliverance from slavery to Egypt, and now they're commemorating this event where they were delivered from slavery. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to, to deliver us from a different kind of slavery, a slavery to sin. The thing about this slavery to sin is a lot of times we're like, when it comes to sin and the idea of being a slave to it, we're sort of like I was at the amusement park. We're having fun not realizing that we're actually in danger. One of the things that I do, which I always feel like I'm taking a risk, is that at Calvary I still occasionally quote non-Christian singers, specifically, well, I'm going to do Metallica this morning. And they have a song in, that came out around 1985 called Master of Puppets. And it's actually a song about drug addiction. And for in case you're worried, he's not celebrating it. He's describing a drug addiction this way. He says, uh, come crawling faster, your life burns faster. Master of Puppets, pulling your strings. That, my friends, is a description uh, of an addiction to where you are a slave to sin. And... Certainly that's an extreme case, but we don't always realize that our pride, for instance, is something that captures us. It's pride that causes me or anybody, for that matter, to not be willing or able to change to save the most important relationships around us in our lives. I'm not going to change, or I can't change, or I won't. It's not me that's the problem, it's you, toxic family member. And we don't realize that we are actually enslaved to pride, whether uh, and no different really than the slavery we might have 
to an addiction. Make no mistake, Jesus came to set us free from slavery to sin so we can enjoy a relationship with God. And so here he is, and he's got his disciples, and he tests them. One of the things that I, as an interpreter of Scripture, do is I, uh, I sort of try to make sense of it, and then I stand up in the pulpit and I proclaim it. And one of the cool things, though, is that sometimes the Scripture interprets you, the reader. And so when you look at this passage, we th see right here, we see Jesus. Well, none of us are Jesus, but we see three people that represent a lot of different people. And in fact, later, there'll be a fourth group of people, and we'll see how they respond to Jesus. But Jesus says, hey, well, what are we going to do? There's so many hungry people here. And Philip, and maybe you're like Philip, and he sees the situation as hopeless. He did the math. No dummy. He, he may not have the, a, a scientific calculator like you or I would have, but he says 5,000 men plus women and children carry the two. We don't have enough food. And that's six months worth of he says 200 denarius. That's six months worth of food as far as he was concerned. Six months worth of work, you buy bread, it's still not enough. The calculator guy. Maybe you're the calculator guy. That's, hey, that's a great gift from God to be intelligent. But what might that do to your ability to have faith? Maybe you're like Andrew. I'm kind of the Andrew. He focuses on the limitations and also concludes that it was impossible. He's like, well, there's a kid here with a lunch. You know, a couple of biscuits and two bluegills, but what's that for so many? See, he saw the great need. But then maybe you're like the little boy who simply trusts Jesus, and he saw Jesus. I'm sure he saw the 5,000 people. He probably was wondering, am I going to get my lunch back? Because that world is a very different world from ours. When I did my, my, my dissertation, one of the things that I actually discovered when I was studying ancient Greece culture and how they related to families, there's a thing called paterfamilias. Horrible thing. It was not practiced amongst Christians and not practiced as far as I know amongst the Jews, but the Greeks thought it was okay for dad to expose his children to the elements up to the age of two years old. In other words, if dad doesn't like the kid... Put him out on the street. Maybe the dogs will get him. Maybe he'll survive. Maybe he'll get taken up by slave traders. Maybe he'll be forced into prostitution. Maybe, maybe she'll be, who knows. And so in this world, the children there are not viewed the same way that you and I view kids. About 20 years ago, I saw a bumper sticker on a car, and actually it was a license plate holder that said, Celebrate Children. And that culture was nobody driving around with that, with that on their car or chariot or whatever they would have had. If it was available, they weren't doing it. So Jesus finds this kid who knows that in that culture he's a nobody. And this kid's got to trust. He hands his lunch over to Jesus. What is it about him that enables this boy to trust him? I don't know for sure, but probably because there was something special about Jesus. Flashback, there was an event where Jesus' disciples are having their sort of Muhammad Ali moment. They're saying, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And so Jesus brings a child into the midst of them. And here's what he says, verse, Matthew 18, verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Kids typically learned, at least early on, they just trust you. Uh, when I, I, I met a kid named Greg about the age of 15 years old, he was in lockdown where I worked, and 
And, and he didn't trust adults, and none of the kids there did, to be honest with you, because they had proven to be untrustworthy in their lives. But Greg decided he liked me, and I remember this day, I promised him I would bring a book. It was a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and I was going to give it to him so he could kind of wrestle through some of his intellectual doubts about Christianity and Jesus, and I forgot it. I want to tell you, what I saw in his face was not, oh, it's, it, it's cool, we, you know, I'm used to, people forget, no big deal, bring it tomorrow, whatever. He looked at me, and I was, for that moment, I was like every other adult he ever knew, I didn't word. So when I went home that day, I, I didn't care that it was like late shift and I'm tired. I went into the house, found the book, put it in my car to make sure I didn't forget it again. Why am I sharing that with you? Sometimes as, uh, as people, we learn to trust, but then over time we learn not to trust. I saw it also in reverse. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm embarrassed to tell you about it, but I did it. When I was 20 years old, I was babysitting my nephew, Jared, about 20 and he was about four years old, and he, we're just having a good time. He's, he's kind of running around the furniture, and my, little, my old dog is chasing him, Bailey, and, you know, harmless dog. The worst thing it would do is lick you till you dissolved. And, and she, she's just chasing him, and I was just kind of joking, because I'm kind of a sarcastic guy. I said something I assumed that you would just know wasn't true. I'm like, get him, Bailey. And I saw his face, sheer terror took me at my word, because that's what a child does. See, when I think of faith, faith is taking God at his word, acting on what he has said, despite how I feel. But at four years old, watching my nephew, I realized you can't just tell kids stuff. You can't assume they're going to catch sarcasm. So I picked them up, wrapped them up, and I was like, oh, son, or Jared, I, I, I'd never let anything happen to you. And Bailey would just lick you. But I saw, so there was like, that was one of those moments when I realized kids distrust you. What's going on here? What's Jesus saying? Is he saying that you have to become all of a sudden uh, uneducated, uninformed? No, that's not what he's saying. If God gave you the gift of intelligence, you have a high IQ, and you can calculate all this stuff, great. Praise God. Use it for his glory. But what Jesus is saying is sometimes you just have to be willing to trust him. To trust him. And sometimes that's hard to do because we, we've done the math. We've been burned. We know that people fail us. Even when they, listen, we, we know that people who mean well still fail to carry out what they say they're going to do. And so when Jesus says, you've got to become like a little child, he's not saying become ignorant un, and forget everything you've learned in life. He's saying, trust me. That's what he's getting at. Do you trust him this morning? Jesus gives us reasons to believe, verse 11 through 15. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as anyone wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Tony Evans says that meant they... Every single one of the apostles had a great doggy bag that day. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They were going to make him king. 
This is the guy we've been looking for. Moses had promised in Deuteronomy 18, 5, that God was going to bring a prophet like him from among the people. This must be it. This must be the guy. We're going we're to make him king. He's going to lead us to victory over the Romans. We're, we're not slaves to them exactly, but we're not free men, really, because we're under the Roman rule. Jesus is going to be king. We're going to have bread. It's going to be awesome. That was the plan. And so Jesus just kind of slips out of the picture. Jesus did miracles, though, to in order for us to have reason to believe. And so these people recognized that Jesus was special, but I want you to catch this. They were not on the same page with Jesus because they were hung up on the stuff, the bread. I want you to hear me loud and clear. Jesus is not unconcerned about our physical needs. He's not, he's not unconcerned about our health needs or our financial needs or our relationship needs or our need for food. But I want us to catch this. Jesus was doing these miracles not just because he loves us, but that, so that we would understand who he is. He wasn't just a carpenter. He was more than a carpenter. He was the son of God. But they were hung up on having their physical needs met, so they wanted to make him king. As this chapter of John 6 unfolds, which is actually the longest chapter in the New Testament, uh, one of the next scenes, so you know this story really well, the next scene in John actually has G the disciples get into boats, off into the sea, but Jesus isn't with them. And as night falls, Jesus walks on the water to them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels, they share the same story. They don't say all the same stuff that the others say, but they all have this story. None of them contradict each other. They simply add details that the other one left out. And when you read the other accounts, what you see is that when they see Jesus walking on the water, they're terrified. And Jesus says, fear not, it is I. And so when Peter hears me, he goes, hey, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water to you. And Jesus says, come on out here. So he steps out, onto, out of the boat into the sea, and you know the story. He sees the wind and the waves, and he becomes terrified, takes his eyes off of Jesus, and begins to sink. And he says, Lord, save me. And so Jesus reaches out to him, pulls him up, and says, why did you doubt, O you of little you know, sometimes in life we start to follow Jesus and, and then the wind and the waves get, get crazy. They start feel like we're going to kill us and, and we take our eyes off of Jesus and we begin to sink or stop following him and, and we kind of give up on the whole God thing saying that it doesn't work, whatever that means exactly. Nevertheless, Jesus is out on the water with the disciples and after he gets in the boat with them, they're back on the shore and the people are still looking for Jesus. And when they find him, they're like, hey, Jesus, we've, we've been looking for you. And Jesus like, He's kind of disappointed him at this point. He's like, you only came looking for me because you had your, your fill of bread. And they have this conversation that, uh, that goes on, and they're still wanting more signs. They're, they kind of like, they're coming to him like, hey, Jesus, we've gotten it figured out for you. All right? You're going to be king. We're going to be the people. You'll be Moses. We'll be the ancient Israelites. We'll be our ancestors. And it's going to be awesome. And, and so they're like, all right, just tell us what you want. Verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? You do the bread maker bit, we'll do the ceremonies. It'll be awesome. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
See, they were hung up on the food and the bread. I, I don't blame them. It's not like America. You go to my house, I got a fridge in the garage and a fridge in the house. It wasn't that way for them. So they want the food, they want the bread, and Jesus is saying, here's what God's trying to do. He has sent me, and he's calling you to believe. I'm not saying God's disinterested in our need for food. What he is saying is our greater need is to have, to be reconciled to God. And that's why Jesus came. See, our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. People aren't always sure that that's true. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I'm a sinner. Everybody here is. What does it mean to say we all fell short of the glory of God? I've wrestled with this verse for, for years. And the thought occurred to me that when the Bible says that every single person was made in the image of God, that means people that you don't like, you can't treat them poorly because they in some way represent God the Father. You can't just go mistreat people. That's actually the basis and origin of ethics, at least in Christian thought. You can't mistreat people because they were made to represent God. So we were made to be glorious, and a part of the glory of God is holiness, the avoiding of sin. Well, guess what? We've all failed that test. Therefore, we have fallen short of the glory of God, and it has led us to be far away from God. So our greatest need is to be reconciled to him. See, uh, no matter what, you may be in a world that it feels like an, lost in an amusement park of sin. The greatest problem is not that you're lost in the amusement park. The greatest problem is that you're separated from your father. The greatest problem was that I was separated from God the Father. See, the cross then is the miracle that meets our greatest need. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean exactly? Just slow down and think that through. He wasn't looking down at the human race and saying, you know, they are evolving intellectually. Philosophy is catching up to what the Bible says, sort of. They're pretty good people. Now I'm going to send Jesus to save them. I just remind you that dads could submit their, uh, push their kids out of the house up until the age of two and let them die. That's the world that Jesus came into, to seek and to save that which was lost that which was lost when you think about that on a personal level listen people quit on you and me so quick when we mess up but not god while we are yet sinners christ died for us while we were thumbing him in the eye offending him snubbing him he sends jesus to sacrifice himself on our behalf and he rose from the dead so this is the miracle that meets our greatest needs how do i then receive the miracle that meets my greatest needs. Romans 10, 9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 13, it goes on to say that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's the result of having this need met? Romans 5, 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God. I don't have time to develop it, but when you read the Bible and really study through what it says about how humans respond to God, it isn't so much just that we've kind of gotten lost in the amusement park. It kind of is more like we, we're not, we don't want to think about God. And this makes him hostile. It's offensive. And when we have peace with God, well... We have peace with God. 
To be justified means to be declared righteous and treated as though we were without sin. To be welcomed into his presence, have access to him, to be able to come to him in prayer. Listen, we had Gary come up here and pray and give us a devotion. Ultimately, the reason we make such an emphasis on prayer is because it is a gift that God's given us because we have faith in Jesus Christ. We have access to him. And so these are the types of things that we're, we, we're looking at. When we, when we think about the human condition, and I'm going to land the plane so we can go enjoy some food, but every single person, all of us, all of creation, we look at it, and, and God created everything on purpose for a purpose. And when we live life God's way, we stay in the place of blessing. If you've been paying attention to our country in the last couple of years, you sort of figured out where things aren't going that well. And can I just submit to you, it's because we're not living life God's way. We're not treating each other as though they were made in the image of God. Cancel each other, shout each other down, cut off family members because we decided they're toxic for telling us something we didn't want to hear. And so this separates from God, and it's painful and it's real. This idea of doing things our way instead of God, the Bible calls it sin. And it leads to brokenness. And that brokenness looks like addictions. It looks like an unwillingness to change. It looks like pride stopping me from being able to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. It, it, it looks like pride that stops me from being able to forgive somebody that's offended me. All this brokenness, it's painful, it's real, it hurts, it stinks. But God uses that to get our attention. C.S. Lewis once said that pain is God's megaphone. He whispers to us through our pleasures, the amusement park of life. And he shouts to us through our pain. See, while we're in the middle of this, of this brokenness and we're hurting and we're separated from God, God is trying to get our attention that we might turn from the pursuit of sin and turn to Jesus in faith. See, what God is looking for is not simply that we recognize that we've sinned and believe the truth about Jesus. He actually wants us to respond, to turn away from sin and turn to Jesus in saving faith. And this morning, if you'd like to do that, not because you've turned your brain off and stopped thinking, but because you actually trust God like a child, this morning I want to give you a very simple opportunity to do that. In a moment, we're going to have our praise team come, but before we do, this morning, if you'd like to call on Jesus for salvation, I'm going to lead us in a very magic in my prayer. It's just a simple way that we've sort of come to know that we can call on Jesus for salvation. And if you want to call on him for salvation, I invite you to take, take, take my words, repeat them to, Jock, to God, and you can begin a journey with him where you walk by faith, not by sight. Everyone bow their heads and close their eyes. Let's pray. Dear God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I've broken your rules, probably in ways I don't even realize. But right now, I'm turning from the pursuit of sin and turning to Jesus in faith. I believe that he died on the cross in my place and that he rose again. I'm trusting him for salvation. I pray, Father, that you'd help me to walk by faith with him for the rest of my life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, if you prayed that prayer, I want to say welcome to the family of God. Uh, one other thing I would tell you before Chad and the, and the praise team sings.
If you prayed to receive Jesus for salvation, that's not the end of the journey. It's the beginning. And so if you did pray that prayer, I would encourage you to talk to somebody, me or maybe a, a friend that you know that knows Jesus. See, what God wants us to do is not just make a prayer of faith, but to also begin to follow him. Because just like in life, it is as we commence this journey that God begins the work of transformation. The Bible has a word for that. It's called redemption. Please stand for our final song of worship. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.